From the movie house to your widescreen at home, Radio 111's Going to the Cinema and the streaming services on Flicks and Picks with Brian Mendoza. So grab your popcorn and beverage of choice and step into our screening room for our weekly forum on film. Now, here's Brian. Hey, welcome back to the screening room. You know, oh boy, there's just, I saw this really great movie called Last Night in Soho. I'm excited to talk about that. I think that's probably going to be my favorite topic because that was a fun movie. And then, oh, there's so much to talk about. We can even talk about Dune t- Part 2, but how are you doing today? I hope you're doing pretty well today. Whenever you're listening to this, either live on podcasts, well, I hope you're doing well. And did you see any good movies? Feel free to leave a comment on the Facebook page for Real Radio 111 whenever my show is advertised to tell me what great movies you saw, and maybe I'll read it on the air. All right? So you know some audience interaction because admittedly so we need to interact a little bit more we need to talk we need to spend more time together (laughs) as you can tell i have a little bit of a weekend voice just because i ate some ice cream last night and that's not a good thing like i always feel bad saying this but like if i eat ice cream at like 10 in the morning at 10 at night i always wake up with a weaker voice because i'm not used to that i usually eat ice cream a little bit earlier just because it's already cold outside so you know it's getting there. It's getting there. And don't worry, I don't have a th- sore throat. I just have a slightly weaker voice today. But I wanted to talk about a couple. I do want to apologize if you hear like a few coffee noise here and there. But just because I have to clear my throat to, in order to make my voice sound a little bit better. All right. So just to get that housekeeping out of the way, I wanted to talk a little bit further today about the Helena Hodgkin situation. That situation has actually been. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this pretty honestly. I think that there is this position where I feel like a lot of people on the commentary scene, like Candace Owens, and I like to even say Adam Baldwin's in it because he's certainly not doing much anymore, is he? Like Adam Baldwin, not Alec Baldwin. Just to make it clear, because Adam Baldwin is um, not related to the Baldwin brothers. He is famous for playing Jane Cobb on. Um, Firefly, and he was also in Full Metal Jacket. He was also in Ordinary People in a role that no one remembers. <laughs> like if you saw Ordinary People, you would be like, "Wait a minute, he was in that movie? Who knew?" You know. But I like to call these people like the commentary circuit, where they always have something to say, even if they are not experts in the subject that they claim to have such profound thought over. So I wanted to talk a little bit about bad faith criticism. A little bit I know it's not a lecture but still you it's it's something to be said because it's something that keeps on happening in our world and I absolutely hate that sometimes so basically any up the updates right now for the Helena Hodgkins um, accident the shooting incident on rust uh, still there's no nobody has Nobody has been cleared of it. Basically, everyone's still under investigation. And it's not saying that, oh, my God, Alec Baldwin killed her on purpose. It's not saying that. I think that that's, first of all, I think that's ludicrous to say because he didn't kill her on purpose, in my opinion. At least there isn't enough evidence to even make that as a conclusion. And I don't I don't know why it happens. Accidents happen. You know, like 
it, that's how that, that's what happens and i know that you know again we started off last show talking about this but you know it's something that we still have to talk about because it keeps because it's an some uh, ever-growing situation so basically it's been concluded that the whole set was basically like to some extent like a little unsafe according to um the the armorer so the person who like was in charge of the weapons and all that uh gutierrez reed that that oh my bad my bad my bad i was gonna say that basically um well like basically gutierrez reed basically said the whole production was like very um unsafe that it felt like there wasn't enough training or enough like proper time to sort of prepare for gunfire and that ultimately the production and her department were basically like like basically saying that it was a situation where like it it wasn't it just wasn't going to work out that it just that things were not lining up and also that things were just basically we were all they were all expecting like a certain level of like professionalism and it just didn't happen that way that maybe it was just a little careless no it was a lot careless of course like that's a little is not basically i'm trying to i'm trying to figure out a way to describe like her their feeling before um basically before like what happened because like i get it like i it's one of those situations where I'm trying really, I'm trying really hard to not like blame anybody or to sort of like put anybody like through the ringer because I feel like this is a much more complicated situation rather than a blame game. Like, um, Hannah Gutierrez Reed, that's the full name, said that she did feel that say that it was her priority on set to like make sure everyone was safe but of course like you know she still felt that there were still some things that needed to be checked upon maybe an additional check on the gun and all that and that the assistant director had given the gun over to Alec Baldwin and said cold gun which basically means well it's safe you know but it's one of those things where the I just the the guy Dave Halls, who is the assistant director, I, I basically get the impression that what had happened was that there were some concerns, and somebody said, "You know what? Let's test it out." So they tested out a certain amount, and it worked out fine. And then they gave it to Alec Baldwin, and he shot it. And basically, what had happened was that Alec Baldwin had um, wanted to tr- test out like he was practicing, apparently, apparently practicing drawing a gun. So that was what happened, and event, and that the pr- the director of the film was right behind Helena Hodgkins, and of course that's I've had people ask me, well, how would the director be so close to her that he would also get shot a little bit? Well, believe it or not, directors and cinematographers do work side by side, so it's not like it's not like they don't work that intimately together to the point that if something happened to one, of course something's going to happen to the other. That's it made sense to me like i thought it was a horrible thing but a horrible thing overall but you know i can see how ever how it was just like a normal shooting day and then this happened i can kind of see how nobody thought that there's something bad was going to happen but then again it's kind of like you know if you don't get that tire fixed like if you don't get certain parts of your car fixed by a certain time you can't 
and then something bad happens to you like you know if you were told hey you got to get that part fixed or maybe you got to test that a little bit better you got to go fix it eventually but i understand that like it's not always convenient and sometimes you're running out of time i get that but then it's also like you know you can't you can't be entirely blameless to some extent about what had happened and i feel like there are good faith criticisms of Alec Baldwin in such a situation like I do feel like as a producer and he might have just been an in-name only producer but like because it happens in Hollywood I think people forget that but I think what happened is that production and the director should have honestly been more uh should have had better conversations with the Gutierrez Reed a little bit better about like what had happened and the gun and just overall the armory and the weapons like you just got to have those conversations in a very very balanced and you got to do you got to basically say that hey if someone supplied the guns to me and they still feel like they're not safe maybe we should really test it to the point that this person wants it to i mean like what are we going to do like lose time like losing they're already losing time ironically speaking they lost time after this happened so they would have lost time checking for gun safety which honestly would have taken maybe a, a day or so which is you know way less than what happened now and then there's bad faith criticism with like candace owens and adam baldwin now adam baldwin i like to sort of say is a not a very good actor and so i've had people i've seen an article that was very biased i'm not going to say which one it is but basically saying that like oh we need more actors like adam baldwin who know how to handle a gun to be on set well you know the thing is that that's the thing is that like adam baldwin wasn't selected to be in the movie and it wasn't because like he knew how to had a gun it's because he uh, alec baldwin is a good actor adam baldwin adam is not so i can see why maybe they would have picked somebody for their skills you know as an actor because essentially the idea is that none of this is real and now that it has happened yeah maybe training your actors to do better but you know what i think somebody like adam baldwin should believe it or not offer to help like if adam baldwin knows how to handle a gun why doesn't he offer to help on set like he's obviously not that how do i put it this way he's obviously not that busy of an of an actor so why don't you go help you know instead of complaining and just attacking someone on i like to say basically uh well i know how to shoot a gun and you don't sort of like this masculinity contest which i absolutely hate i think this is the wrong time to do that if you want to offer to help people do go ahead and do so come on you know and then um basically candace owens who is a commentator who i think is absolutely terrible like i don't like her at all like i have never enjoyed her criticisms of anything she basically took an opportunity to attack alec baldwin by saying this was poetic justice if it wasn't for the fact that a woman died basically she wanted to say it was poetic justice but she didn't want to be entirely dismissed so she put in there it would be it would be poetic justice if someone didn't die it's basically like if i went up to someone and said gee you know it would be i hated your cooking it would be poetic justice if if it wasn't for the fact that your cooking literally killed this person next to me see that that doesn't you just wanted to say it you know she just wanted to say it was out poetic justice because she feels that Alec Baldwin dehumanized Trump supporters on SNL when he did those impressions of him on there. First of all, 
you know, I'm gonna be honest. They the 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 people who Candace Owens hangs out with, the people on her side of the political sphere, they always say that SNL is so bad that they don't even watch it. But they seem to watch enough to know what is being said on there. You know, if they had watched it, they would have probably seen that. There's a bit. It was. It's not like Donald Trump wasn't that easy to make fun of. I'm not saying. I'm not trying to be political, but it's not like the man wasn't easy to make fun of. It's a lot easier to make fun of somebody like Donald Trump than it is to make fun of someone like Joe Biden. Just saying, just from a comedic standpoint, if you wanted to have, trust me, I've done impressions of both of them, and the Donald Trump impressions get more laughs. Trust me. Um, I would say too that it's just horrible, and I know that him and uh, that Alec Baldwin's daughter Ireland Baldwin had a conversation with Candace Owens, and it was like civil and all that. That's good for them, but I still think that that was not a good comment on uh, Candace's part. That basically, it's a what are you talking about? Like this, this has nothing to do with it anymore. Like someone died, and you make it a point to be political about it. Like, look, there are actual good faith criticism about how that set should have been better uh, protected. That the actors should have been trained see those are good criticisms and if you are somebody like adam baldwin who apparently knows how to shoot a gun maybe you can offer to help maybe go on rust and say hey mr baldwin i wanted to talk to you about like what's going on here because there's some there's a lot there's a lot that didn't go right and i'm going to help you out but rather than just go on your twitter and say something right like it's a lot easier to bash someone like that rather than like actually trying to be a productive member of society and help you know there there are ways of helping people out i just think it's absolutely ridiculous when people like candace owens and adam baldwin think they have more to say but hey coming up next we're going to talk more in movie news stay tuned He's been touched by an angel or two. You know, Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel, maybe even Gene Shalit. Here is Brian Mendoza talking cinema on Radio 111's Flicks and Picks. Another news update. Oh, the music might have been too loud there. So another news update that happened with Helena Hodgkins. I know, I know, I know, I know we're talking about it. But, you know, it is important still. Like, it's still a horrible thing that happened. And there's always... There's so much to talk about, but um, basically this has ignited like a conversation about the usage of live rounds on film. And so two series that basically feature a lot of violence, one more than the other one, that being The Boys. Basically, the showrunner of The Boys has basically stated that he will no longer be using uh, live rounds on set. Same with like the producers of the rookie which is a show on abc um i think this is a pretty good idea i think that like being able to take the initiative say hey you know we don't we want to prevent that so let's try to figure out alternatives and there are alternative ways of like i feel like if you have the budget for it i think that shows like the rookie and shows like um the boys concerningly in my personal opinion concerningly use like cgi and both shows are pretty good. I actually watched the Rookie. Rookie. La- rookie <laughs> Why am I saying Rookie? Uh-uh. The Rookie. Uh, the Rookie last night. The Rookie. And it was. <laughs> every time I mispronounce that word, please correct me. 
I, I see that word more. I, I don't know. It's one of those words I see more than I say. I don't think because I'm not a cop, so I don't see it. But that show is on ABC, and I started watching part of it on Hulu. It looks pretty good so far. I actually like it. Like, I actually think it's a pretty good show, and it has Nathan Fillion. So you have a couple really cool people on there. And so The Boys is also, like, this really violent show. So for them to decide, you know what, we're not going to use real guns, like, that sort of sets an interesting, like, standard now. Like, can a show or movie not use guns? I think that's actually a really good, like, um, indicator of it, you know. I think that there is something to be said about the fact that that they are taking that responsibility. And, and personally, for me, I have mixed feelings about it. Like, I do think that, like, if you're responsible, anything can do. But I also feel like there's, like, there's also a thing where it's, like, you never know how responsible you are when something happens. So maybe... Because, like, different people have different definitions of responsible. Like, someone can literally be like, well, I was responsible, and then someone still got killed. So there's that conversation. Like, were they really responsible? And then there's this conversation about how many times you can test the weapon, how many times you can do this. So I think it can be, like, a standard, like, with horror films, like, with slasher movies. Like, with slasher films in particular, they use, like, not only, like, protective gear, but they've also, historically speaking slasher films have not truly been the the ground for horrible accidents like it's always ironic that they're called the violent movies or in the 80s they were part of this moral panic but yet nobody can legitimately say they died on set but they have there have been moments where like on a slasher film set like somebody got stabbed by accident like there was this movie called scream 3 where um the actress used a real knife nev campbell and she uh, stabbed the, be- the back of an actor and the actor had protective padding but because Nev Campbell went a little further down he did get stabbed for reals because the padding itself wasn't sufficient or it was basically a thing where it wasn't sufficient to stop the whole knife which I understand how I could have been misdirected and it was that movie's and but he didn't die or anything like if anything that shots in the movie so if you see Scream 3 the scene where Sydney stabs the killer you can see the actor's face like it's after the face reveal you'll see which part you can see that he really got stabbed it was in and he was fine like he was fine afterwards he's fine he got to (laughs) star in the least good screen movie but you know still you know he's okay now but basically like there are way i i think that scream 4 set an interesting like standard where they use cgi a CGI knife and it looked fine in fact if and because of the lighting it doesn't look as like fake as it could have been you know like it's weird like scream 2 had a fake looking knife for some of the shots only for the beginning really but that was it was a joke it was it that was part of the joke if you saw scream 2's beginning you'd see why but but with Scream 4, they used uh, CGI. And I think that for guns, I think CGI is not the worst option. I think, in fact, it might even be a good alternative because you can honestly y- use, like, you can enhance, like, a fake looking gun with CGI, first of all. And you can use, like, CGI bullets. So it's not like it's impossible to do it. I feel like there are ways of incorporating CGI. And I feel like if you master it well enough, like, if we get started now, by the time that it becomes becomes more it's going to become more mainstream at some point to the point that even a low budget show can benefit from it so like there are way there could even be a thing where like you might even get some tax credit to be able to get cgi on your student film 
but who knows you know it's not like trust me i think people are more forgiving of a fake looking gun than they are of a fake looking knife like if your gun looks fake it's not that hard to make a gun look fake a uh, real you know so if your gun looks quote unquote fake it's not as bad as a fake looking knife so you know i think there are ways to get through this discussion without necessarily using a real gun and i get that like there's you know it's i don't think it's like a second amendment thing like i get it i mean i get because people like adam baldwin who are like in my opinion like second amendment activists like the really hardcore ones the ones that are bad faith actors not the ones who actually care about you uh having a gun but like they just love to like critique and you know call you less of a man for do for not having a gun on set but then you know what's the solution if the people who know how to handle a gun ain't gonna help you know if they're not gonna help they're not gonna help you know but hey stay tuned we're gonna talk about last night in soho so stay tuned and we're gonna talk about the news that dune 2 is actually happening If you love motion pictures, you've made it to the screening room on time. Radio 111 presents Flicks and Picks with Brian Mendoza. Last night, last night, I was going to say last night, last night, last night in Soho came out. So if you're listening to this a little bit later, yes, last night was the 29th of October. So for this holiday week, for this holiday weekend for Halloween, last night in Soho came out. Wow. A lot of last nights, if you say so. But last night in Soho came out and it's, and you might've seen the trailer for it. It's that movie where Anya Taylor-Joy is this blonde girl with a pink dress and she's uh, looking in the mirror and there's Thomason McKenzie who's in a like blue like tank top or something like that I think if anything it's like a night tank top like something you wear to bed you know like a pajama but basically they look each other in the mirror and the song downtown plays and you're not entirely sure what the movie's about it kind of looks like a mix between like repulsion and something else like something different like the night it's I would say it's a mix between the 60s and repulsion but you know, Repulsion came out in the 1960s, so of course that movie's a mix. That movie's already a mix of 1960s pop culture. But, so what is Last Night in Soho about? So for the most part, I can't say much more because it's, oh boy. Because it's one of those movies that, like, the more you say, the more likely you're going to spoil it. So basically, there's this young fashion designer, this young girl who wants to be a fashion designer played by Thomas and McKenzie. She, her name is Ellie. And she wants to be a fashion designer, so she goes to London and stays there, and she has a hard time kind of moving in, kind of fitting in with everybody else who are, like, more typical types of, like, model-esque girls, so, like, girls that you would assume could be, um, let's say, um, who could be fashion designers and fashion models at the same time, whereas Ellie's more of a, well, she's more, she's a pretty girl, but she's, like, a different kind of pretty than the other girls, you know? so she sticks out so she has this like obsession with the, like the 1960s especially 1960s chic london she's obsessed with this she listens to like records she loves the fashion she loves the movies even though like when i saw the poster on the wall i'm like that movie came out those movies some of those stuff came out in the 50s not the 60s like i had to remind myself that like breakfast at tiffany's was 1961 and 
it's weird because the 60s were a decade that i would almost argue started pretty pretty early like it's weird because the decades like almost split in half like the first half of the 60s is one type of look and the look that she's looking for is more mid late 60s so i'm always kind of surprised when people reference breakfast at tiffany's i don't know that's something kind of a strange tangent to go on but there's that reference but when she moves in she has a hard time fitting in so she decides to move out over to this one house that is very antique looking and this woman uh mrs collins who is played by diana rigg she and by the way diana rigg this is her her final performance and it's a good performance it's a really good performance but she um basically rents it out to ellie and ellie starts having these like weird dreams slash visions or whatever it's established pretty early on that she might be seeing things or she might have visions never know not gonna say if she does or not so she starts imagining this like person from the 60s named uh sandy so sandy is this young aspiring singer slash model who is the girl played by Anya Taylor Joy in the poster and in the trailers the one with the blonde hair and the pink dress and she basically tries to work her way through the system and she meets this guy named uh, Jack who's played by Matt Smith and she is and he is her manager slash boyfriend so as things start to sort of unravel the fantasy world that Ellie escapes to because essentially she's using what happened to Sandy or what's going on with Sandy to sort of escape into that. So while she has a pretty decent life as a fashion model, uh, not fashion model, fashion designer, she gets into these like weird fantasy dreams or whatever, like visions. And so she escapes into them and then slowly but surely they start to realize that maybe it's not as cracked up as it, as it is. Like maybe Sandy had to do things that, that, Ellie would never imagine. So imagine like the coolest girl from the 60s, like the coolest girl with all the who represents all the shallow aspects of the 60s, the look, the style, the cl- the clothes, the the coolness and then unraveling that, trying to figure out the price of all that. And that's last night at Soho. So there's not there's not much I can say because it's one of those movies that's like really I don't know how to put it, but like really difficult to like articulate too well because it's because it has a lot of twists and turns and i think that for the most part it does a really great job especially i think edgar wright does this really good job of like taking the twists and building on top of them i know that there's going to be some controversy about the ending i know lots of like critics have already talked about how like this movie was great until the ending but i think for the most part the movie almost convinces you of a certain kind of ending and a certain kind of conclusion and then like when the twist comes you understand where they were going with that they were not going down one certain type of path but going somewhere else it gets you thinking like i don't know i don't want to spoil it it's one of those things where like if you look if you see me down the street and you want to talk about this movie we can talk about it but on this show we don't we're not going to get into spoilers because i don't like doing that but basically what it happens is that you kind of have this feeling of where this movie's going to go and then it just turns another way and some people feel like it's too much of a left turn i think that it's actually a really interesting twist and it changes conventions from these types of movies so it's sort of it's sort of like sort of like a repulsion 
esque movie. Like it sort of has those types of themes about sexuality and womanhood. But I think that in some ways it tries to sort of show a certain resistance to those things more so than Repulsion did. Because Repulsion's more I'm gonna say this, like does not read as well anymore. I think that Repulsion's a great movie. It's fantastic. But there is a certain sense that because a certain person directed that movie that it doesn't age as well that it's sort of it sort of seems very content with the bad things happening to this character without really um examining it versus let's say last night in soho where these bad things happen and a character sort of resists them or tries to resist the situation and it feels more genuine but you also understand like why she's a little bit more powerless about it so there's not a lot of easy answers in the finale and i think that a lot of people may not like it they they won't like how it happens and i think that for it's just one of those things where i do think that also like you could figure out the twist too well at least one of the twists if you are a very detailed visual learner so like if you're someone that like can see things in the corner or can see things on top of things you'll see something so you'll see like a certain symbol or word and so i'm just gonna be honest i saw the twist just because i was a very i'm a very detail oriented viewer and i saw that and i thought it's this it's this and then even then it threw me by a further surprise because i thought it was a certain type of twist and then it threw it threw in that it was another type of twist so once you figure out this movie it throws you into another curveball which i think is pretty pretty impressive i think it's really impressive the look and style of this movie has been talked about already i think that it's very giallo-esque so like if you've ever seen those really colorful horror films from italy that's like a giallo film like a film that really indulges on like color and like like especially bright colors and like murderers and like womanhood like those types of horror films like this is definitely inspired by inspired by that i think that malignant is the other film that tries to do it but i think this is way significantly better because i think it's it's a much more smarter film i think that this movie tries really hard to scare you from a sort of message standpoint like it wants you to really get to know why this character feels the way he does she does and i love thomas and mckenzie's performance because she's actually the lead not anya taylor joy and i love and i and i I hate to say it but like i loved her character so much that I actually really hated seeing her go crazy. Like, so I hated seeing her go through all this pain because I wanted her to succeed. And that's how likable it is. Like, I'm actually kind of happy that a horror film nowadays has a really likable protagonist because I've been sick and tired of, like, scary movies coming out with, like, unlikable characters and me saying, can can we just kill these off, you know? And, like, even to some extent, like, the Conjuring movies don't even have the best characters. Like, if anything... I wish that they were developed better. And so, I don't know, last night in Soho, I like to call it the sort of like anti-conjuring of movies. Like, this is an actual movie that has like actual jump scares that don't, that are clever. Like, you actually get where they're going with. Like, and they're not just trying to scare you like that. Like, it's actually trying to use like psychology and actually try to be intelligent about scares. So, it's one of those things where like somebody's going to say, I wasn't that scared by the movie. Well, you know, it's not as as frankenfurter said they didn't make it for you if you like the conjuring but hey you know i guess there's something wrong with the conjuring i actually like those that first movie and that second movie but you know that latest one was bad so last night in soho in my opinion features really great performances from 
everyone diana rigg tamas and mckenzie uh matt smith terrence stamp has a pretty good performance as this mysterious old man who may or may not have had a dark past i'm not going to say what it is um and uh michael ajo as john he's really good in this movie by the way he's actually a really he does a really good job as like ellie's love interest uh, and i think that him and thomas and mckenzie have really strong chemistry that it was it was a bit of a shame that 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 michael doesn't have like a more um extensive filmography because i would have loved to have seen more of him and thomas and mckenzie you've seen her in jojo rabbit and old she can act the girl can act and i'm, I'm actually happy that i'm actually happy that this is a, her movie because anya taylor joy is already going to be a star i want thomas and mckenzie to be a star too i think that she and her anya clearly have in my opinion like a star potential like an actual a like big time movie star and another thing is that um it's it's just a beautiful movie to look at i think it's a visually sunny movie it's also very well crafted like there's a scene where like uh i don't think it's a spoiler but like anya taylor joy's character sandy wa- is walking and you see um ellie's reflection in the mirror and every time like the characters run away or run around this room um i like the fact that like you see sandy walking and then every time she walks by something, even if it's like a very quick second, they still put in the detail to have uh, Ellie on the other end there uh, in the mirror. So I think it's actually I think it's actually like a really great thing and a great detail in general. So overall, Last Night in Soho is like my favorite horror film from this year. Like I, I think this was a year that was pretty mixed for me in terms of scary movies like Malignant is pretty out there. But I don't know if I would say it's a good movie, but it's out there. Like, I mean. I would say it's i think it's fine like if anything that was just fine you know a little silly little bonkers but you know what had fun with that one conjuring three that was bad you know those movies you know if you if you're not gonna have james wan do it you're not gonna like it you know it's not gonna be any good Candyman was actually really great and so last night it's a hope you know there's always gonna be that mixed feelings about the ending but once you really think about it it does make sense so I think it's beautiful to look at, visually stunning, a great tribute to the giallo tradition of Italian horror films, and features really great performances. So if you want to see a a horror film, a psychological horror film that's really patient, uh, really patient with its subject matter, and it really has a lot to say about like womanhood in the 1960s in particular, I think Last Night in Soho is definitely a movie you should check out. And just overall it's like i i would give it four stars i'm i'm being i think i might be considered generous here but no i think it's a four star movie i think it's great and you know that ending's gonna get some conversation and i think that ending's gonna age pretty well i've seen plenty of bad horror films that get better ratings than that so if this doesn't become a horror classic i'm gonna be surprised stay tuned Big screen blockbuster, little screen stream, festival favorites, award show nominees, winners, and the occasional pan. This is Flicks and Picks on Radio 111. Here's Brian Mendoza. So last week I talked about how much I admired Dune from like a technical level and also, you know, there are legitimate criticisms of it. Like, I do think that the conversation about excluding Middle Eastern actors and 
just Islamic actors or Middle Eastern actors in general was not great in hindsight because you know they do borrow a lot from Middle Eastern culture in Dune so you know there's that criticism but overall I think most people have enjoyed Dune and have actually wanted to see the story conclude now the funny thing is like all these Dune memes and Dune jokes are just coming out and I'm saying they're like you are all living the nightmare I've had for years because like um, if you are in literary circles or like you've been around people who read books Dune is sort of like we all make fun of how weird the book Dune is and so we also make fun of how weird the 1984 movie is and so I gotta say that watching the I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest like just watching like all these Dune jokes come about it's great I think it's wonderful and I think that there's something really po- I think there's something really positive and uniting about that I don't know like not the best thing to be obsessed about but it's just one of those things where like it's it's great to see people finally get into something that I've been getting into which is making fun of Dune for the last 50 years you know just kidding you know I'm not that old but it's just that it's been something that people make fun of ever since the book came out so you know respect science fiction work but also a bit funny so dune basically premiered at the box office with 40 million domestically around 40 million now currently speaking it has had it's jumped up to like about 54 million so i think this is great they're getting closer i think they're finally at the 300 million dollar mark as of today as of october 30th so they're not they they haven't broken even but it looks really good compared to the box office numbers of other pandemic films and so i gotta say that that's great the currently it it's done the best in terms of box office openings of all the hbo max warner brothers um uh day and date releases so there's all that take into consideration there's also the fact that while it is one of the weaker um performing on hbo max like with its 1.9 million views i think that the reason why it didn't do so well on hbo max is because there was all this push about seeing it cinematically because it's on a big screen so if you want to see dune i do recommend seeing it on a big screen because it just hits differently than it does on film at home i mean so like i think that there is something to that i think that there were people out there that really wanted to see dune on the big screen and so it helped out and i think that it looks really good and i think because there's no competition for this weekend really like last night in soho as great as it is i don't think it's going to get the numbers that a dune has like i know that for example when i went to a movie theater the other day the other day to go see last night in soho um (laughs) the dune movie was still playing on the bigger screen so i saw last night in soho and dune in two reasonably big screens but dune was on the bigger one so if you want to see like dune in a really big screen then you most likely will have the opportunity to do so because next week the eternals comes out so we'll have to see how that does i think if anything the eternals might make I don't know. It's weird because the Rotten Tomato score wasn't as great as it was and they're trying to push for an Oscar campaign which I get it if but if they want an Oscar campaign why don't they give it to Shang-Chi which is kind of sad cuz you know The Eternals from what I hear is not as great as Shang-Chi. So, you know, you got you got a you got a movie that everyone loves Disney, so go on that one instead of the one that you want to look like an Oscar nominee. Interesting. So, basically long story short legendary pictures and water brothers green lit the next dune movie because not only based on the good box office but i think there's another way of looking at it 
because they redeemed they greenlit it literally the week this week because i think that they also want to boost the box office sales because then people feel more incentivized to support it it's like hey i went to go see dune part one then i can see dune part two in two years from now so it is going to be coming out in 2023 october 20th and that they basically and a, re, a reason why they took a while for um a while before they um screen the they greenlit it was because they were concerned about um they were just basically concerned about like um that there would be a a theatrical only release for it so like the film itself i'm trying to remember like 45 days that they would be given a 45 day window to basically just to have the film in screens and then later on they can go on um pvod and then it can be on hbo max so instead of it being like how it is now because i think that's actually a really good strategy i'm hoping that by 2023 we can have a completely cinematic experience i don't mind having these films at home i mean because sometimes it's just convenient but it is nice to see something like dune part two on the big screen so there's that conversation and so i'm happy dune part two is getting made and so if you want to see Doom Part 2 guarantee itself being made, go support Doom Part 1 in theaters. I think that that's actually going to be really a strong indicator of interest, especially considering that this is the last weekend to watch that film. So, go honestly, between Doom Part 1 and Last Day in Soho, you got two great films to watch. Um, real quick, I did see parts of Antler. I did see Antlers. Um, it's fine. It's okay. It's like two and a half. Like, it's not much I can say. I didn't have much more to say than that. You know, it's okay. Like, I just wasn't that impressed. <laughs> but, um, go check out Last Day in Soho and Dune Part 1. They're both great four-star movies. But, you know, if you've already seen Dune, Last Day in Soho is waiting there for you.